Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, thanks for joining us in this episode of Research and Pharmacy, podcast where we talk with content matter experts about all things related to research, including fundamentals, best practices, and practical advice for all those interested in contributing to the advancement of knowledge. My name is Alex Flannery, and today we'll be chatting on emerging sciences. We're talking with Chris Pesatowski from the University of Florida about FDA emergency use authorizations and their relevance to practicing pharmacists, particularly as COVID-19 has increased public awareness of this topic. Thank everybody for joining us today. Chris, thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Can you describe for our audience how an emergency use authorization differs from the traditional FDA drug approval? Sure. So emergency youth authorizations at their core are intended to make medications or medical products available, but not necessarily to recommend them. So when public health emergencies hit, previous drugs that are already on the market often merge as potential therapeutics, leading to a rapid decrease in supply as demand surges. Most recently, we saw this with hydroxychloroquine for the COVID-19 pandemic. So emergency youth authorizations enable access to federal stockpiles of these medications. They typically come with specific criteria for use, which may include at-risk populations, severity of the disease, or particular lab markers. So it's kind of before a drug approval from the FDA. Now, there is a statement from the FDA that kind of just nuts and bolts this, where under an emergency use authorization, the FDA may allow the use of unapproved medical products or unapproved uses of approved medical products in an emergency to diagnose, treat, or prevent serious or life-threatening diseases or conditions when certain statutory criteria have been met, including that there are no adequate, approved, and available alternatives. So taking into consideration input from the FDA, manufacturers then decide whether and when to submit an emergency use authorization request to the FDA. Once submitted, the FDA will evaluate the requests and determine whether the relevant statutory criteria are met, taking into account the totality of the scientific evidence about the vaccine that is available to the FDA. So that leads me into my next question here. So what's the process then for a drug to obtain this? How you mentioned the manufacturer submitting to have to apply for this. What does that process look like? So to answer that second question, yes, the manufacturer does have to apply. So the first thing that must happen is there has to be a determination that a situation exists in which the emergency youth authorization may be required. It's based in specific laws. I mean, we generally might think that a declaration of a public health emergency would be the base requirement, but that's not necessarily the case. So the relevant frame of law exists under Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, in which one of the following four must occur. So either the Department of Defense Secretary issues a determination of military emergency or significant potential for a military emergency. This one is not as often used. The Department of Homeland Security Secretary issues a determination of domestic emergency or significant potential for a domestic emergency. The Department of Health and Human Services Secretary issues a determination of public health emergency or significant potential for public health emergency. Or the DHS Secretary issues a material threat determination. So that third one about the public health emergency is the most often used, but there are four different scenarios that can occur. But after one of these has occurred, government sponsors and manufacturers can submit a request for an emergency youth authorization to the FDA. So once they do so, can you describe this review process for it? Um, Does it sort of resemble the traditional review for an FDA approval? So yes and no. It is expedited to a degree, but there are four criteria that must be met when considering a drug or product for an emergency use authorization. So one, there must be the presence of a serious or life-threatening disease or condition. Obviously, with the COVID-19 pandemic, that criteria is easily met. 
There must be evidence of effectiveness. So in diseases like COVID-19, where we don't really know of anything that could help at the onset, there's a progression of evidence that can happen over a short period of time. And often this is fanned and exaggerated by media, misinformation, whatever, what have you. It starts with drugs having been used in similar diseases, quote unquote. Uh, it progresses to case reports, to trials that are pretty quickly thrown together and often have serious flaws, which we did see in this COVID pandemic, especially with hydroxychloroquine. And then we kind of get to a plateau of well-run trials that take longer than people are willing to wait, which would be part of the actual approval process. But then we also have to have a risk first benefit analysis. Since there's no proved options for an emergency situation, the sum of evidence prior to that plateau of adequate trials is reviewed and determined whether or not the sum benefit is worse than the disease. In most cases, these diseases are infectious and pretty deadly, so the scale definitely tilts towards saying yes, and emergency use authorization is usually granted. And then the final thing is that there must be no alternative. And this has some specific language involved there that there must be no adequate, approved, or available alternative to the candidate product for diagnosing, preventing, or treating the disease or condition at hand. So in terms of adequate, if there's contraindications of available drugs, this may necessitate other options. So specifically in like pediatric populations or drug allergies. And then there must be no other available products. So other drugs might be generally available for use in this situation, but supply is drastically dwindled due to emergency need. So again, we get these case reports saying, hey, this drug might work for this disease, and then everyone wants it, and manufacturers quickly run out. So once all these criteria have kind of occurred, typically for a new drug application for approval or denial from the FDA is about six to 10 months, and that's not counting all the years of trials, research, and development, but an emergency use authorization can be granted within weeks of just a few months. So a drug gets an EUA, let's say, now what? What, what series of events does that set off both at the federal level and, and for individual practitioners that, that might want to use the drug? What do you have to do to use a drug with an EUA for an individual patient? Sure. So I'll break that down. Uh, there's two major sets of conditions that are generated from emergency use authorization conditions of the authorization and conditions for use. So starting with the conditions for authorization, information for healthcare professionals and authorized dispensers needs to be made available. So these people must be informed that the EUA exists, the known risk and benefit and extent of the unknown, and any potential alternatives. This can generally be provided via a distributed like brief fact sheet. Information for the recipients must also be made available. So anyone receiving treatment under the EUA needs to be aware of all the pertinent information for risk versus benefit, rationale behind the drug, very similar to the information provided to the healthcare professionals. And then we need to have monitoring and reporting systems set up. So since these drugs are untested, systems need to be set up to ensure that the risks and detriments do not outweigh the benefits as time progresses. And then, of course, we have to keep records. So anyone receiving these medications, they need to be recorded and logged. For conditions for use, drugs under an EUA are often subject to shortages in allocation. Like I said, they're wonder drugs per se, and people just want them, so supply rapidly dwindles. So since they're shortage in allocation, health systems will only get a limited amount for use, which then leads to conditions for use to preserve that supply. So criteria for use are often generated at a higher level, but they might be adjusted to the system level as appropriate. But some of these criteria often take the form of the severity of the disease, lab markers, specific populations, all of that kind of stuff. So obviously, COVID-19 has really increased the public awareness of, of EUAs pretty substantially. Can you sort of walk us through what drugs we've seen obtain EUAs for COVID-19? And then what about before COVID-19? What types of drugs were we seeing you know, getting EUAs and how, about how frequently? 
So COVID-19 has been far and away the largest uh, supplier of emergency use authorizations for drugs, medical products, assays, all this stuff. So uh, looking at the FDA website, there's been about 300 entries for diagnostic products to get an EUA for COVID-19, 22, 25 for PPE, 27 for ventilators, medical devices, and only eight for other drugs or and biological products. So some of these are remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, bamlanivimab. I'm sorry, I'm butchering that one. I think everyone is. Casirovimab and convalescent plasma. So prior situations have definitely elicited EUAs. Um, so some ones that have been in headlines in the past years have been Zika virus, Ebola virus, Middle East respiratory syndrome, coronavirus, H1N1, and anthrax. However, each of these really only had a handful granted compared to just how many COVID has really generated. I mean, when you go to the FDA website and have to scroll down to read all the entries, that's pretty significant. So once an, a product sort of runs its course, I guess, do, do EUAs have expiration dates or, or are they formally revoked? How, to, how does that work? Yeah, so by nature of their creation and response to an emergency situation, the EUA may or may not have a pre-specified end date, depending on what all is going on in the research field. However, the FDA is constantly reviewing to decide whether the circumstances deem the EUA's existence as appropriate. They're not just going to let things run and walk away from the topic. But they can either revoke or revise the EUA in response to emerging evidence regarding the emergency situations, uh, the drug's efficacy or the harm it's causing, or changing the approval status. For instance, if the medication's approved, then the EUA is no longer required, so it goes away. But once revoked, any remaining supply is considered an unapproved product and needs to be disposed of pursuant to the relative laws. However, those who started using the product prior to the EUA being discontinued can still finish out the course. So after all this, what's the most important concept about EUAs that you hope listeners might walk away from this podcast with? Uh, My main takeaway is that these emergency use authorizations always need to be taken with a grain of salt. So it's not a medication approval, and it's not a recommendation to use the medication per se. It's more so the mechanism to allow medications of interest, allow access to those medications of interest in response to these public health emergencies. So there's a wide time course. So they might get the EUA in one month, and then three months later, evidence has come out that these drugs are either not so good or are actually causing harms. So... Just take it with a grain of salt. Realize that this is not a black and white, you need this drug. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to, again, thank Chris Pizitowski for joining us today to discuss emergency youth authorizations. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP and the ASHP Foundation's research resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and exchange ideas with your peers on the ASHP Connect community. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Research in Pharmacy. And we hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.